want to share with you on the thought that, that God on mission, God on mission. The truth is Christmas is the epic example of the first missionary ever who is God. God is the first missionary. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't Jesus, it wasn't David, it wasn't Muhammad. It was God, the very first missionary, and we see that in the incarnation. So Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, let's just kind of start here. I want to read it, and then we're going to pray. You can follow along on the notes there at mynewbridge.church. You can scroll down and find the notes. Just understand when you see the notes, don't hold me to the notes, right? That's just like a suggestion of where we may go, but we'll just trust the Holy Spirit to lead us. John 1, I'm sorry, Luke 19.10. Let's start there, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So God, the missionary, the first missionary, this is his mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Father, thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Thank you for what you're doing. Lord, thank you for what you're going to do. Lord, we stand in this holy moment, Lord, and Father, none of us here, myself included, Lord, I don't want to hear another sermon. Lord, I don't want to hear myself preach another sermon. Lord, we need you. God, we need your presence. We need the word of life. God, we need our, our hearts to be transformed by the precision and the surgical nature of your word on all of our individual hearts that are in the room or on live stream or will be listening later. Holy Spirit, help us today to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Lord, as we go back into Scripture and we look at this incredible story of the incarnation. Lord, mobilize us as the people of God into right relationship with you, God, into the mission that we are called unto. Well, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the incarnation is the centerpiece, if you will, when we think about this God who's the first missionary. The incarnation is the centerpiece. Now think for with me for a moment, because we're going to revisit this subject a little bit with a fresh set of visceral open eyes to the reality of what happened, what happened over 2,000 years ago. That the infinite, the infinite became an infant. Think of that for a second. The infinite became an infant. John 1:14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now think of that for a second. The infinite becomes infant. That God puts Himself in a womb. Now talking about one of the hardest and darkest places on the planet right? If this is our mission, God entered in to the womb of a woman. Now, I don't want to shock treatment anybody, but that's a pleasant environment. From what I remember of being in the womb myself, I remember it being a very tranquil, beautiful place. But science has taught us that at 20 weeks in the womb, the amniotic fluid is comprised of 90% urine. And just let that set in your crawl for a minute. That the infinite God became an infant, put himself into our waste, 
unto ultimately taking our waste one day on the cross. This is God we're talking about here. This is God. Not only was it the darkest place perhaps on the planet, then he was then laid in one of the dirtiest places on the planet in a manger. Put there, what is a manger? It's a trough where animals eat. Not the way in which you would imagine God coming to earth. Our sun is 93 million miles away, yet none of us can stare at it for longer than a half a second. Yet the one who is brighter than the sun itself put himself into the womb of a woman, laying aside the divine nature. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? That God would take such an, an, an unexpected approach to reach us. How many of you have, would say that God has worked in your life in ways you did not expect? How many of you would say that God has worked in your life in many ways that you would not have preferred? We're all there, right? God, His ways are mysterious to us. If I was thinking, if I was going to come and I was going to rescue humanity, I probably wouldn't, would have picked this route. I would have done it like Lone Ranger style. You know, get on the white horse, rode out of heaven with my holy lasso and round everybody up. You know, just kind of Lone Ranger style. But God doesn't do things the way we do things. Have you ever sort of noticed that? That man, in our ingenuity, we think about building canals. We build canals. In the Panama, in the nation of Panama, they built a canal, if you didn't know that, right? And so you kind of understand that the shortest distance between two points is a what? Straight line. Makes sense, right? So I'm going to go to the most narrow place on the planet to connect two vast oceans to build a canal in a very straight line. It makes a lot of sense from a mathematical and engineering perspective. But guess what? God doesn't build canals. What does God build? He builds rivers. Rivers. Rivers do not go between two points in a straight line, they wind and round our life so much. God has no problem with taking you in the opposite direction where you think you should go in order to get you to where you're supposed to go. God takes unexpected approaches in all of our life. This is why one of the key prayers of Moses was, Lord, teach me your ways that I might what? That I might know you. Right? When we learn the ways of God, we begin to know who God is. That's why we have this thing called the Bible, because the Bible shows us how God operates. And it's counterintuitive, it's antithetical in how we are naturally going to think. So as we study God's Word, we learn how God operates, therefore we know Him a little better. God operates outside of our sphere and reasoning. And He did in the incarnation, that He set aside the divine nature for us. Why? Why? See, what's the motive here? We know the story, but what's the motivation of this God who is a missionary God? It's love. So it's a love that birthed a mission in the heart of God. Love birthed the very mission of God. To answer the question, why would the infinite become infant? He was motivated by love. You probably know this verse, John 3.16, somewhat familiar to most of us, right? For God so Love the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God, in the mission that He had, was birthed from this place of love, because guess what God is? God is love. If you were going to sample the DNA of God, it would simply come back as love. God doesn't do love. He is love. Therefore, everything God does is out of the place of love. 
So God can never do anything. God can never take any action. God can never move in your life and in my life apart from being motivated by who he is and who he is as love. That for everything he does for you and me and orchestrates in my life comes from the place of love so I can trust him. This is the God that we serve, motivating this place of mission by love. Now let me ask you a question. It's kind of a trick question. Did you find God or did God find you? Did you find God or did God find you? Let's let, kind of think of that for a second. Our God is not just a missionary God, but our God is a suitor. Everybody say suitor. It's kind of an archaic word you may not be familiar with. It's a metaphor that's used to describe God. What is a suitor? A suitor is simply a man who pursues a relationship with a particular woman with a view to marriage. That's what a suitor is. Now, viewing God as a suitor for many of us could be problematic because it doesn't sound like the right kind of descriptor for God, does it? To think of him in terms of as a, as a suitor, as one who is motivated by love, howbeit a romantic love even. We are typically, when we think of God, even the church, more comfortable and accustomed to adjectives like he's a deity, he's, he is creator, he is Lord, he is God. But it gets a little weird for us when we start thinking about God as our suitor, the one who pursues us. You know, why is that? I believe that the spirit of religion works overtime to get behind a view of God that is not entirely complete. The spirit of religion is somewhat okay with you keeping God at a distance, Lord and Creator. But the spirit of religion is utterly against relationship. See, the spirit of religion wants to end or to restrict or to constrict the relationship that we can have with this pseudo-God who is motivated by love. I want you to know there are few things in life that I hate, but I have come to the place where I absolutely hate the spirit of religion. I have seen it work in my life. I have seen it work in many others' lives, and it robs us of so much truth and what God is ultimately after in every single one of us. For example, how many of you have ever been or are currently in a long-distance relationship? Maybe you're married and maybe your marriage was preceded by a long-distance relationship. Anybody ever been in a long-distance relationship? Maybe you had your husband or wife that was in the military or someone that traveled quite a bit. Maybe you're dating one was in school for a long time. How many of you just love long-distance relationships? Of course not. It's, it's horrible because what does the distance do? It hinders relationships. You know, a phone call, even a FaceTime is not enough, right? You want to be with that person. So when you think about the message of Christmas, that God is not about long-distance relationship, that is why he is called Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. He is motivated by love because he desires to be with us, not in distance, because he is motivated by love. His motive is affection, not acquisition. So the difficulty is of a long-ranger idea of God just coming and gathering all these people. That's not who God is. God is not about acquiring for himself a bunch of followers. God is motivated by affection because he loves you and he loves me and he actually desires to be with me. 
He's not motivated by what we think he is oftentimes. He actually is motivated by love and affection. And that affection causes him and has caused him to go to great lengths to come to us and to reach us. Now, I'm not sure if there's any man in the room who's ever experienced this thing called being in love. Being in love. But I remember when I first met my beautiful wife on a mission trip to Brazil... I looked at her, and I didn't have eyes for them because she was a little bit older than I was, so I didn't really even think it was possible. But we got back from Brazil, and we started going to the same church, and I began to notice her. Who knows what I'm talking about? I began to notice her. Right? I began to realize, oh, this is a godly woman, and she is my perfect fit. And I began to pursue her because I knew God had called me to pursue her because she was going to be my wife. The problem with, she was operating in a spirit of stubbornness and was not hearing the, the correct voice of God, right? She didn't, God had not told her that yet, or she was unwilling to hear this great truth, which, which was problematic because I was the pursuer, and she did not make it easy for me. Now, I thought, surely once I confessed my love to her, she would have fallen on the floor in a puddle of tears of great joy and bliss, but that's not what happened. She slid as far away from me as she could, and for a 48-hour period of time, she actually broke up with me, which was the most devastating moment of my life. But guess what? I loved her, and I wasn't going to give up, and I'm going to pursue her. And guess what? There's tangible proof of that pursuit. It's on her finger right now. Right? This is, this is what pursuit looks like that has been motivated by love. If I was going to print a Bible, and that said Bible on the front, I would put a subtitle under the word Bible that would define the entire book. The entire Bible, I believe, can be defined in one simple phrase, God the wedding planner. God, the wedding planner, the entire Bible is all about the father planning a wedding for his son. The father is arranging this wedding. He is calling his people, he's calling his bride out for a purpose unto a wedding one day. We are his bride. And the father is good about arranging marriages. This is what he is doing. He's arranging this for his son. Let me just take just a moment, if, if you are single in the room, right, if you're single in the room and, and you're not exactly sure what's going on, can I tell you, let God arrange it? Because God's a greater arranger of relationships than we are. Do you believe that? That we can trust the Lord and say, Lord, I am fully yours. I am confident that you're going to arrange everything that I need. If I'm called to be single, you'll give me grace to be single for whatever period of time I'm single or my entire life. Or, God, I trust that if you have a husband for me and a wife for me, you're going to arrange it. Because when we take matters into our own, our own hands, sometimes it doesn't work out so great. And sometimes when we do that, we have to claim Romans 8. You know what Romans 8 says? For all things work together for good, for those who love God are called according to His purpose. I love that verse. That verse is so appropriate, has affected my life by grace. But listen, that promise comes with a little bit of pain. For God works all things together. That means it's the amazing grace of God that steps into our mess and turns it around for our good. But there's a higher way, isn't there? You don't always have to claim that verse in relationships. As a guy who has done countless hours of marriage counseling, premarital counseling, man, I have seen situations where I said, guys, you shouldn't do this. But if you do, 
Once you get the ring on, there is grace to get you through it. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let me encourage you, let God arrange your marriage. A recent fact came out that arranged marriages have a 6% divorce rate. Culturally, arranged marriages have a 6% divorce rate. The old-fashioned way, which is not the old-fashioned way, us doing it ourselves has a 55% divorce rate. Do you think God cares enough about your life to arrange who you're going to spend the rest of your life with? Man, trust Him. God will arrange marriages. God will arrange even broader relationships. We sat here this morning because God arranged a marriage between a church called Cornerstone, Assemblies of God, a church called Meadow Baptist, and a fellowship called the International House of Prayer. God arranged a marriage and brought us all together. He did that. We didn't come up with that idea. We wouldn't have been crazy enough to even attempt something so foolish in the natural. But God, who's the God of the impossible, arranges things, but it's unto something else, isn't it? It's for His purpose. It's this God on mission being reflected in our individual lives and in our corporate lives together. So we stand back and say, God, here we are. What's next? And how many know God's got some great things that's coming for us? Now, yes, we acknowledge there's a mystery here. When we look at God's sovereignty and we look at human volition. God is the pursuer. God is sovereign. God is in control. Yet, we as human beings, we have a right to choose. And we look at that, and we, we kind of want to settle it. What's up with that, God? But we should never expect to settle that. We should just adore the mystery of it. John Calvin himself said, this tension that exists was never for us to apprehend, but for us to adore. To recognize that God is sovereign and in control and arranging. And yes, I do have free will to respond to the pursuit of God and just trust that's how the Father works. But God is a great pursuer. Never think for a moment that you found God. Because He was pursuing you before you ever thought about pursuing Him. And a casual survey of Scripture, just a casual survey of Scripture, reveals this God on mission. For us, very clear. I'm just going to give you a, a few examples. You can follow along in your notes. But if you take the manger as ground zero and you flash back through Old Testament history, you look through the rearview mirror and you do what Moses did, right? Lord, teach me your ways that I may what? That I might know you. You look at the Old Testament and say, God, how did you operate? How did you move through the Old Testament? And you're going to find out something about God. Number one, it starts off in the very beginning. God pursues Adam in the garden. Genesis 3, God rescues Noah and his family. Genesis 5, God calls Abram out of Ur. Genesis 12, God saves Lot from the destruction of Sodom. Genesis 19, God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3. God delivers the Israelites in Exodus 14. God sustains through the Judges, the book of Judges. Read the whole book. The whole book of Judges is a miracle in and of itself, 200 plus years. There's no reason that the entire nation of Israel wasn't amalgamated into the cultures around them. But God sovereignly, strategically acted through the Judges to preserve the purity of the Jewish people. Otherwise, they would have been lost forever. This is the activity and the supernatural sovereignty of God at work. God speaks to young Samuel and calls him out. God anoints David through Samuel. 
Notice this. This is just a few examples of this God on mission, God pursuing, because God will have his bride. God will deliver a bride to his son one day, because God is arranging. It is his activity that we get to cooperate with. But notice all these verbs that God, that, that prove him to be a suitor. He pursues, he rescues, he calls, he saves, he reveals, he delivers, he sustains, he speaks, he anoints. These are all verbs attributed to God. This is the God that we serve, who is motivated to reach us, to come to us. And each one of us has our own verb we can attach to what God did for us. Do you have your own verb with God? When God spoke to you, when God delivered you, when he reached you, our God is a great pursuer. And it's not just limited to the Old Testament. If the incarnation, if the manger is ground zero, you can look at the rearview mirror and you can look back, but you can also look forward from the manger and see the, the activity of God as he is pursuing us. We see it when Jesus enters on the scene. He immediately begins to call his disciples. He would often call them by name. Look at this, John 1.43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said, come, follow me. Went to him by name. He also draws us some interesting verses here. John 6.44. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father is drawing that person. That we know from Scripture that we have this thing called depravity, which means if left up to ourselves, we can't find our way out of a cardboard box. In fact, a way that seems right to a man, what? Leads to death. Our best efforts, our best minds will always take us to the wrong place, like building a tower called Babel. We're not able to deliver ourselves, but God, who's the missionary God, chooses to rescue us. Here's another interesting passage, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, And I confess, I don't know what this means. All right? It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, you can parse that, dice that all you want. But here's how I interpret that. Lord, I thank you that I'm called and I thank you that I'm chosen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. So quit trying to make application of that verse to everybody else. Just receive it. It's for you and for who he's called you to reach. You have been called. You have been chosen. You've been adopted by this heavenly Father who loves you. Now you're a part of his kingdom. You've been delivered, right? You've been delivered from darkness and unto light. Doesn't that feel great? And we're called to, to deliver the same message to all those around us. God pursues us. But how does God pursue us? What are the methods by which God pursues individual lives? Well, one way we see in Scripture is through sovereign encounters that God directly intersects with a person or a people to encounter them in a powerful way. One clear example in Scripture is found in Acts chapter 9, and that is Saul of Tarsus. You know the story, right? Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and what does God have in store? He shows up, Jesus shows up on the road, blinds Saul, knocks him off the horse. He's left totally blind for three days. Getting the message, Saul, you are persecuting me. God, Jesus took direct action to minister. Do you realize there are so many stories today of God going in mission mode to reach Muslims? There are so many testimonies now that people in the most obscure places on the planet 
are, are getting visions and dreams of Jesus. We heard recently from one of our missionaries in Kenya, part of Sin 56. His name is Deed. He's an indigenous African missionary, and he relayed this story to us. He told us about there was a young man who was named Muhammad, and Muslim, knew nothing about Jesus, but Jesus appeared to him in a, a vision. The next day, Christians came knocking at the door, and they shared with him the gospel. And guess what? Muhammad got born again. Muhammad was born again because of the gospel, that Jesus appeared to him directly, and that God had sent Christians to tell him who this guy was in the vision. Well, Muhammad was so excited, he calls his dad in Isiolo and tells him the story about what happened to him. Indeed, just so happened to be going through evangelizing and got to share with his dad the gospel, and he became born again. Can I tell you that we serve a God who is on mission? That these guys here that are going to some of the hardest and darkest places on the planet, that the Father has already gone before you? That the ground that you are plowing, the Spirit of God is already plowing the ground ahead of you? This is the God that we serve. It's not all on us. He says, the Father is drawing and He is pursuing, and we get to cooperate with Him in that pursuit. Many are called and few are chosen. God is so good. Sovereign encounters directly how God intersects with us. Well, the other way He does it is He sends us, right? He uses us as part of the process, right? He calls us to go into the neighborhoods, into the nations, into the marketplaces. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a what? Without a preacher. That the Father calls us to go. We call it the Great Commission. And you know, it's not just in North Africa, but it's the cubicle next to you at work. It's the person right next to you. It's the person in line at Walmart, right? The Lord is calling us to go. We, as the people of God, right? This God on mission dwells in you and dwells in me by the Spirit. His love for us has been unleashed in our heart, so we go. But the go is born out of this love inside of us to go. Not because we are being compelled to go by some outside force or some guilt trip. Is that this love inside of us is God's love, and it's not His will that any should perish, but all, right? Everybody say all. All come to eternal life. We do not have the right to parse and split who we think God is calling and who we think God is not. We go to all and to everyone who will listen. And we believe that when the gospel is preached, when the testimony of this God that we serve is uttered out of our mouth, there is power in it to disarm and dismantle the spirit of the age to be able to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. I believe that. I believe the power of the gospel is able to cut through the blindness and unbelievers and allow people to perceive and to see and experience the gospel. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And guess what, guys? Here's the good news. You don't have to be Ravi Zacharias to share your faith. You don't have to have a degree in apologetics to share your faith. Sometimes many of us don't want to share our faith because we're intimidated by the questions that may come. Yes, the questions come, but all we're called to do, right, is to share the gospel because in that presentation of the gospel is where power is. 
That in conjunction with your, with your testimony. Man, Satan can't even touch any of that. Amen? That God has called each and every single one of us to be on mission. So when we think about Christmas, we think about what this is all about. It's not about the North Pole. It's not about reindeers and sleighs. It's not about stockings. It's wonderful and all that stuff is. It speaks to us clearly that this is a God who has a mission. A mission that was birthed out of love because that is his character. And that's why he has done everything that he has done. And I believe in the room this morning, there are some of you sitting right there that you know that the Lord is calling you to go. You feel this thing inside of you and you're saying, God, I know you've called me to do more than I'm doing right now. You feel like a caged cat. You know, you just know that God has called you. You're saying, Lord, I don't, want, I don't know what you're going to do, but I just, I just, I know I'm called to go. And I want to do more than I'm doing right now. You're sitting there. Maybe it's to go to North Africa. Maybe it's South America. Maybe it's across the street. But you know the Lord is stirring your heart with the message of the gospel because he has called you. There's some of us right now that are really struggling because God is pursuing, but we're not saying yes to him. I believe there's those in the room right now that would say, you know what? God is pursuing me. I know that, but I just, I just don't know him. But I know he's pursuing me. He's putting people in my life. I'm hearing songs. I'm, everywhere I go, I, I, I see God reaching me, but I haven't said yes to him yet. Man, he's knocking right now. Man, he, he desires you to be with you. Not that you are perfect, but he wants to come into your life. He's Emmanuel. He wants, he wants to be with you through the person of Jesus Christ. He's there. He's knocking the door of your heart. But there are some of us, too, that we know him, but sin has kept us from him. Listen to this thought. Sin, right, will keep you from his presence, but will never keep you from his pursuit. Sin will keep you from his presence, but it will never keep God from his pursuit of you because he's not afraid of your sin. See, that's what sin looks like for a believer. It will never disrupt who you are in him, but it will disrupt relationship with you. And God's saying, listen, this thing that you're holding on to, this sin, it's not bringing you the satisfaction that you think it's going to. I want to be there for you. And God wants to deal with our heart this morning and touch us. Can I invite us to stand and make wrap up a little early this morning? I feel really strongly as I was, as I was praying this morning specifically for two, two kind of folk. The first is this, that, that you know that you know that you know that God has called you to go. You just feel it in your spirit. You can't define it. You can't necessarily qualify it. But you know the Father is calling you to go. And he's annoying you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has a way of annoying you. And he's bugging you. And, you. and you feel that in your heart. Man, I want to encourage you. Say yes to him. Just say yes to him. Never make the mistake of trying to define your call to the one who called you. Never make the mistake of trying to define your call, right, to the one who called you. I did that for years. I would have passed the polygraph test 25 years ago right now that I was confident that we would be on the banks of the Amazon River somewhere in Peru reaching an unreached people group under a mosquito net. 
I honestly thought. I was convinced of it. In fact, I clung to that so tightly. The Lord had to take us on some long rivers to peel my finger one at a time off of what I had defined. The one who calls is the one who defines. All we do is say, Lord, yes. Yes. How many of you this morning say, yes, Lord? I'm going to just say yes to him. Right here at Christmas time, Lord, yes. Whatever you want, God. Whatever you want, I will, I will go, I will tell, I will do it, Lord, for your glory and for your namesake. And here's the good news. You don't have to be a graduate from cemetery. You don't have to be a graduate, right? You don't have to be an apologist. He hasn't chosen many noble ones. He's not chosen many wise, right? He's chosen a really peculiar people who he has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Always looking for is yes. But the yes is first to him and not to something he wants you to do. You see, that's where I missed it for years in ministry. I, I primarily identified with, with God as, as, as my king, and I was his servant. Because I was a perfectionist. I wanted to get it done for Jesus, right? For years operating that way, years flowing that way. Unbeknownst to me, the religious spirit was operating in me at a, at a toxic level, and I never knew it. And it was causing me to be robbed of the relationship that all God wanted was me. He wanted to be Emmanuel. He wanted to be Abba. He wanted to be Daddy. That's what he wants. He wants you. He wants me. He wants to be with me. He wants to love me. I don't understand God's sovereignty completely. But I do know something about love a little bit. I do know love has to be received to be effectual. Love has to be received to be effectual in our life. And I tell you, the Father wants you to receive his love. It's an inexplicable love. It's an unfathomable love. But he wants to love on you. And it's impossible to receive the love of God apart from receiving the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that sheds the love of God abroad in our heart. So when we say we're being filled with the Holy Spirit, yeah, that's empowerment for ministry. But even beyond that, it's empowerment of the love of God in our hearts to bring the love of God to bear in our life. And I tell you, it is life-changing. It changed my life when I came into understanding that all he wants was me, with me, that I have nothing to lose and I have nothing to prove. In him, he brings me to that place of peace. Would you just put your hand over your heart for a moment? Maybe you're in this place right now. And you know the Father is pursuing you. He's knocking the door of your heart. He is relentless pursuing you. And you have never met him. You've never said yes to him. You've never said yes to him. And you can do that right now. You can do it right now. You can say yes to the king. Perhaps you're right here in in this place and you know that God is calling you to go and you haven't said yes yet because you've tried to have a lot of clarity and try to figure it all out. You've tried to define it. makes no sense. So you put it back on the shelf. And God's not looking for you to define. Always looking for you to say, yes, Lord, I'll go. I'll go next door. I'll go to Africa. I'll go to South America. I'll go wherever you call me to go. I'll go. Just simply say yes to him. Just simply say yes. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Could you just worship him?
Lord, you're the air we breathe. You're everything, God. You're everything, God. We're here for you. We're here for your glory. We're here for your namesake, God. Lord, I pray, God, that by the power of the Spirit of God, you would free us from a spirit of dead religion and traditions of man. God, can we even pray the impossible? That in a Christmas season that focuses on so much that's not of you, that God, that we could really encounter you in a meaningful and powerful way that you're there, Lord. You're pursuing us, God. There is a reckless love, God, that you pursue us. Lord, we repent, Lord, of all sin, of all stuff that we've held on to. God, forgive us. We worship you, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Spirit of the living God.